from PRX. Studio 360. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island. This is Kurt Anderson in Studio 360. This song sounds kind of quaint these days, but it seems very apt this extraordinary week. It was written right between the Great Depression and World War II. And for people then, it was a real American anthem of protest and hope, especially the verses you didn't learn in school. We'll talk about This Land is Your Land later in the show. This land was made for you and me. But I've got to start with the obvious. After Donald Trump was elected president on Tuesday, a lot of people were speechless. And when they finally managed to catch their breaths, they started to look for who to blame for their surprise, their astonishment. A lot of that blame laying has been directed at the pollsters and analysts. But blaming prognosticators for this election is a little like blaming weather forecasters for Hurricane Katrina. It wasn't the forecasts that were the cause. It was the climate and not just the economic climate change of the last couple of decades, the much longer running climate change where presidential politics and entertainment blurred. This is the first time we've ever chosen a president who has not served in elected office or in the military or public service of any kind. Donald Trump is an entertainer. He's a reality television star and self-marketer and pro-wrestling character who used his notoriety to land this new giant role. A couple of months ago on this show, we did an entire episode about how presidents like Kennedy and Clinton seemed to really understand that they were performing the presidency. And if anybody understood that political leaders could and should play roles the way actors do, it was this guy. Jack Warner of Warner Brothers. I'd been under contract for a number of years, heard that I was running for governor, I understood that he said, no, no, Jimmy Stewart for governor, Ronald Reagan for best friend. Coming from the movies himself, he realized that the presidency was a, a form of movie and that if you could successfully convert the presidency into a film, you could have the same kind of effect on an audience that a movie had. That's the author and film scholar Neil Gabler. He wrote the book on how entertainment has come to reshape reality, including politics. It's called, appropriately, Life the Movie. I interviewed him at his house on eastern Long Island. I, I, I've lived here for 24 years, believe it or not. And you'll even hear a few crickets and birds in his yard as we talk. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't be living out here, but I am. <laughs> um, Reagan was, of course, the, the first time we elected an actor, a professional Hollywood actor as president. And I want to I play a clip um, of Reagan while he was president in 1985. I have my veto pen drawn and ready for any tax increase that Congress might even think of sending up. And I have only one thing to say to the tax increasers. Go ahead, make my day. Uh, which is, of course, uh, a Dirty Harry reference. Um, people throw movie lines around, but 
Reagan did it a lot, and it had, it seems, more significance in his presidency, right? Ronald Reagan was the first president who really understood that stagecraft wasn't just a part of the political process. After all, Franklin Roosevelt understood stagecraft. He knew how to deploy it. Ronald Reagan was the first president who understood that stagecraft is the presidency. And the president wasn't really a politician. He was an actor. Right. And that notion of it's morning in America, his famous ad from 1984, he wanted to be the president of feel good. And that's what movies generally do, not all movies, obviously, but movies often leave us with a sense that all is right with the world. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Who wouldn't want to go see a movie where it says, Americans, it's morning in America. Aren't you happy? I mean, you want to enter that theater. Reagan understood that if he could make Americans feel that way, it didn't make any difference what he did in terms of substantive policy. That policy fell by the wayside in terms of this larger psychological impulse that he could generate. He didn't internalize the movies. He didn't internalize entertainment. Right. It, he lived within it. It had, in some ways, colonized his own brain. Yeah. It's, it's really true, such as this moment I love from uh, President Reagan's 1984 debate with Walter Mondale. I think the people should understand that two-thirds of the defense budget pays for pay and salary, or pay and pension. And then you add to that food and wardrobe and all the other things, and you only have a small portion going for weapons. I, I, oh, I love that at the time. I love the wardrobe. We usually call them that uniforms. The wardrobe budget. I'll tell you, that's what's killing us, is the wardrobe budget. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the movies have not done our, our presidential candidates any favors in terms of the way that they have portrayed heroism. Because, you know, the, the, the primary theme of our movies is the idea that an individual, through his own agency, can make everything right. Right, right. And that becomes part of our consciousness. Right. We're looking for a president who's going to be Batman. Well, one of the paradoxes of, of Donald Trump is he is, as you say, all, all candidates must be performers. He's a guy who had his actual reality show training for more than a decade to get ready for this campaign. But it's his authenticity that is so attractive to the people who, who like him. He is simultaneously a pure reality show, circusy performer, but, whoa, he's being real. He's, he's saying what we all think. Well, he's playing within an American type. And that American type is basically, you know, the, the iconoclast. This is a long tradition in American entertainment, the person who doesn't abide by the social order. And so what he's doing very cleverly is he's merged two things. He's merged the entertainment type of the iconoclast with the idea of the reality television personality so that he is a real iconoclast. Right, right. One of the most interesting comments in this campaign was one I heard Mitch McConnell make, where he said that he approached Trump at the NRA convention And he said to him, you know, you ought to read off a teleprompter. And Trump said to him, 
Can't do it. I'd be boring. <laughs> yes. How many candidates have ever thought about the engine of their candidacy being not boring? Yeah. yeah. I don't think Hillary Clinton sits there and says, am I going to be boring today? <laughs> I, I don't think so. So if Donald Trump becomes President Trump, what are the implications in terms of the performative show business aspects of, of the presidency? Well, we're going to have a presidency that follows the contours of Reagan in the sense that it's going to be a movie, but the movie is a very, very different movie than the one that Ronald Reagan presented, which right. was a genial, uplifting kind of film. You know, this would be four years of a very angry, resentful kind of movie. When you see vengeance on the screen, it's on the screen, <laughs> and it stays there. Vengeance in real life in the office of the presidency is another thing entirely. Fifty years from now, historians are going to look at this period, and they're going to be scratching their heads and wondering, how in the world did this happen? And the answer will be entertainment. That's how it happened. That's the author and film scholar Neil Gabler. We called our full episode about the political entertainment industrial complex, Hail to the Entertainer-in-Chief. You can find it in your podcast feed or at studio360.org. Coming up, I'm not being pushed off to the side. We are not being pushed off to the side. We're tired. We are overtired. How a good citizen ended up in a great photograph. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. I started the show talking about how the merger of entertainment and presidential politics makes the Oval Office like theater in the round with the performances beamed into every home and every pocket. But I want to spend the rest of the show on how we respond to all the political performance. Because in this scenario, we're not just in the audience eating milk duds. We've got our own role to play, the role of citizens. During this presidential election cycle, more than any since 1968, race was both text and subtext. With Trump awkwardly dealing with his glowing support from all kinds of white supremacists, including the Ku Klux Klan, Trump also warned darkly of non-existent voter fraud in those neighborhoods and of dangerous refugees and walls at the border to keep out the rapists. And unlike the 1960s, we live now in an era where racial violence isn't just alleged, but routinely documented by citizens on YouTube and Facebook. The video, the horrific video that I saw of the shooting, the murder of Alton Sterling. Another black man, this time in Louisiana, shot while he was pinned to the ground by two police officers. <sighs> It was beyond sickening. It was beyond disgusting. So I flew to Baton Rouge. This is Aisha Evans. I am a nurse. She traveled to Louisiana from her home in Pennsylvania to join friends who'd organized a protest. They were in awe. 
Like, you came all the way down here for us, and it's like, yeah. Like, you are me, I am you, you know? Like, we're in this together. On the morning of July 9th, thousands of people were protesting across the city of Baton Rouge. Aisha's group assembled outside the police headquarters. It was approaching noon, the sun beating down, and hundreds of people were marching in the street, chanting and holding signs. There was a lot of anger, a lot of sadness. And when police started moving toward the protesters, things escalated. The crowd was being pushed off to the side. They were being pushed off on my left side. They were all being told to go into the grass. And that if they were in the grass, they would be able to peacefully protest. But even in the grass, the police officers were marching forward with their shields, banging on their shields and pushing my people further back. And there was one guy with like a video camera He was just like, they're telling us to protest in the grass. They're pushing us off into the grass. They want us off the street. So I looked at him and I said, well, well, what's the point? I just felt like that defeats the purpose of a protest. I'm not being pushed off to the side. We are not being pushed off to the side. We're tired. We are overtired. So I walked further into the street. And she stood there staring down two officers dressed head-to-toe in heavy-duty riot gear. The photographer Jonathan Bachman, a freelancer for Reuters, caught that moment of their confrontation. She stands in the center of the frame, feet firmly on the pavement. Her head is held high, and her expression, in spite of what's going on, is calm, serene even. Her sundress billows in the breeze. The photo went viral for its odd elegance. This moment of peace? Is she about to be arrested? Or maybe this is some kind of parlay between the two sides? And the two officers, looking like characters in some Brechtian performance, are doing what exactly? They're coming from the left, full riot gear, every limb and section of their bodies covered, protected, padding, shields, You know, they're ready to go. There are arrest ties, a firearm on their belt, and they're sort of reaching out. Mark Speltz is an historian who's written extensively on photography from the civil rights movement, and he's fascinated by this photo. There's this space between them, and and she's got her arms sort of crossed, just standing stable, erect. There's nothing behind Miss Evans, but there's a whole line of the soldier, or I always say soldiers, The lines of the officers in armor behind them. There's so much information to read and wonder about. The photo is so unlike the other images we were seeing last summer and the year before. Protesters and law enforcement in confused standoffs and in frenzies of movement. People lying in the street. The videos of crowds running. Tear gas. People pleading with police. And black men shot and dying which is what made this image so surprising, how different it was. The police officers and the protester close, but not touching. This strange pause, this moment in between. But I think that there's this gulf and this divide, and the two sides really couldn't be more clearly represented. And with the militarized response and the authoritative and overwhelming, sometimes occupying force that you feel, 
in some of the photographs, and I'm thinking of back to Ferguson. You know, it wasn't a new realization for African Americans, right? The juxtaposition of heavily armored and armed versus unarmed is very powerful, and this just makes it visible. I think the vulnerability of blacks versus police was very visible in this photograph. You have studied many, many photographs from past civil rights moments in America. Did something, did this photograph remind you of images you'd seen before? It did, but I think that there's a different type of civil rights picture here. And what comes to my mind are, you know, peaceful, calm, reserved, well-dressed women protesting. There's a particular one taken in 1963 by Bob Edelman, and there's this impeccably dressed woman. She's wearing jewelry, glasses. Her purse is clutched in her hands, and she's all alone at the center frame. There's a police officer or two behind her, and she's at a construction site. She's slowing the construction of this project because they weren't hiring black workers. You know, she's kneeling on her protest sign in that dress on a dirt road. And there's massive dump trucks behind her. And she's, you know, doing an act of civil disobedience. Right. And there's scores of photos like these, but we don't typically see them. And why? Just because they're not as violent and angry? Well, the media at the time, in the North and the South, tended to focus on the most violent, eye-grabbing situations. And this type of violence also sold newspapers. Spelt says that the serenity and the dignity of this photo from Baton Rouge is what made it so extraordinary and so popular by my reckoning the photograph of the year. Aisha Evans really does seem the very embodiment of steely calm. The most common misconception is that I am a peaceful person. I'm, I am what I need to be when I need to be. And there was no need for me to be rambunctious at that present moment. But had there been a need for me to protect any of my people, including myself, that would have been something that I would be willing to do. It's that warrior quality and the intensity of the event that she says is missing from this photograph. It's safe. It is the color book version of the truth. It is what they want to see. They want to see a presumably innocent black girl in a dress looking so peaceful and non-militant and non-threatening. And it's just, it, it, it's, it's candy for the people. Not that I'm against the photo at all, and and there's a lot of positive feedback that I got from people and how they felt about the photo and the way it influenced them. But um, as far as the seriousness, which is the issue that's going on here, I feel like that out of all of the photos that have been taken, that is not the strongest photo to depict what is really going on and how we as black people living in America, like we as Africans living in America, how we feel about what's being done to our people. Why is it still the 1960s? Why are we still having a civil rights movement? Why do I have to stand here? Right after that picture was taken, she was arrested by those officers, loaded into a van with other protesters and taken to jail. 
where she spent several hours. She was charged with obstruction of a highway, but that charge was quickly dropped. This is supposed to be America. You know, this is supposed to be the land of the free, so-called. This is supposed to be a democracy. I think we're nervous as, um, as a nation about all that we really need to own up to. This is the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Tracy K. Smith. It's instantly, I guess, one of those iconic images, but what, what makes it feel heartening, apart from what is literally being represented, is the fact that there's still, uh, we still have the capacity for, for these kinds of gestures that, in my mind, link us back to uh, a moment in American democracy where so much seemed possible for the first time. At Studio 360, we commissioned Tracy to write a poem about the photograph. The sense of love as a clarifying force is something that seems to seems to sit at the middle of this photo for me, and I, I just wanted to um, to see where it would where I could go with that idea that using the word love in a climate that is characterized by so much that is almost directly the opposite of that felt like a really exciting opportunity. Unrest in Baton Rouge, after the photo by Jonathan Bachman. Our bodies run with ink-dark blood. Blood pools in the pavement's seams. Is it strange to say love is a language few practice but all or near all speak? Even the men in black armor, the ones jangling handcuffs and keys... What else are they so buffered against, if not love's blade sizing up the heart's familiar meat? We watch and grieve. We sleep, stir, eat. Love, the heart sliced open, gutted, clean. Love, naked almost, in the everlasting street, skirt lifted, by a different kind of breeze. That was absolutely beautiful. <laughs> Aisha Evans. What resonated with me was the, uh, the skirt being lifted by a different type of breeze. Um, and in my head, it kind of takes me to like uh, every bad breakup I've ever had. And feeling used, you know, especially when you if you've ever been cheated on, if you've ever been lied to. And that is how I feel about our present condition living in America, being an African American. I've been with America for how many <laughs> for hundreds of years and you've been lying to me and you've been cheating on me and you've been disrespecting me and lifting my skirt, <laughs> you know what I mean, and, and embarrassing me. But um, I, I, I want it to be clear that it's not just about me, just because I happen to be, and I guess if you want to say the right place at the right time, it's more than just the, you know, the girl in the sundress protesting, this peaceful protest is bigger than that. Aisha Evans is a nurse. She lives in Pennsylvania. We also heard from Mark Speltz. His new book of civil rights photography is called North of Dixie. 
And my great thanks to Tracy K. Smith for her magnificent poem. You can read it and see that photograph by Jonathan Bachman at Studio360.org. Coming up... This land is your land. How a new generation of musicians has reclaimed a classic song. To me, this song is like, I'm not African, but my ancestors are African, and I am American, and then you can come back and say... We didn't walk over here. We was brought over here in chains, you know. The generation after generation, we helped build this land. So this is our land. You know, I am American. America's other national anthem. That's next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. This land was made for you and me. Studio 360. For Hillary supporters and anti-Trumpers who slipped into a fugue state after the election, at least they can look forward to Saturday nights. I never, ever use email. It's too risky. That is Alec Baldwin on Saturday Night Live. Instead, I use a very private, very secure site (laughs) where one can write whatever they want to and no one will read it. It's called Twitter. Did you rehearse in front of a mirror to get this fish mouth just right? (laughs) Yes, yes. That's Alec on Election Day talking to WNYC's Brian Lehrer about playing Trump. I would sit in a room while they were doing my makeup and I would say – I won't say the line that I used on your show, but you can imagine what line. I would sit there and probably 30 or 40 times in a row I would say, grab them by the blank Grab, grab, you know, try to get his his uh, enunciation. You could say it on cable or Howard Stern. But long before Alec appeared on SNL, my pal Jim Downey helped define how the show handled political satire. He was head writer for years. You know, my theory of it was as much as possible, you, you want the audience to do part of your job by having thought about things. When you can talk about what they've just been talking about in the line... You're way ahead of the game. It's so much easier. Jim, I'd like to interrupt here and answer that question as if it were my turn to speak. I worked a lot with Daryl Hammond on his gore. Like, I would go to Daryl and say, uh, he loves this kind of thing because it, it, he, he likes hitting this kind of note. And then Daryl would, would say, have you noticed this or that tick? And uh, I remember there was one thing in the piece I wrote, the big debate piece, where it was like... Um, uh, my, plan, my plan, Jim, Jim is different. It's different. <laughs> now, under my plan, Etta's prescription drugs would be covered. Under my opponent's plan, her house would be burned to the ground. <laughs> well, that brings us to the close of tonight's debate. And live from New York, it's Saturday night! We've got more from Jim Downey about the prickliness of certain politicians who appeared on SNL and sketches that were too edgy for TV. All that's in a special podcast we released into our feed last Monday, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking at you right now, and I'm saying, Kurt, this land is your land. I'm talking to you. This is Nora Guthrie daughter of the man who wrote what's probably the best-known modern American folk song. When Woody wrote this, who was he looking at? Who was the you he was talking to? 
This land is your land, and this land is my land, from California to the New York Island. And I see all those faces of the people that he writes about, the poor, the white, the black, the Indian, everything that makes up this country. And he looks at each one of them, he says, this land is your land. This Land is Your Land has become a kind of unofficial national anthem. You can trace it all the way back to Okima, Oklahoma, where Woody Guthrie was born. But let's start a little more recently. A cold January day in 2009, after two years campaigning all over America. Are you prepared to take the oath, Senator? Barack Obama took the oath of office and became the first non-white president of the United States. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. At his inaugural celebration, Bruce Springsteen and Pete Seeger sang, This Land is Your Land. As I went This same song was once called communist and anti-American. All I could do was look up and say, Dad, there's a song for every moment in time. This big one is your song. This song has been waiting around for that moment. That's what I really felt. So how did it start? When I mention Woody Guthrie, what do you picture? Maybe a dust storm. The sound of a freight train. A hobo in one of the boxcars playing his harmonica. I've been working at Pittsburgh Steel. I thought you knowed. I've been dumping that red hot slag way down the road. But actually, that was all an image Guthrie had created. The reality was a little different. The Woody Guthrie you hear on records is not the real Woody Guthrie. Um, that's uh, coon hunting language. That's Ed Cray, author of the biography Ramblin' Man, The Life and Times of Woody Guthrie. He puts on a, uh, an exaggerated drawl. At home, he wrote uh, and spoke in, in excellent English and with the faintest, faintest of, of drawls. Woody Guthrie was from a middle-class family that had fallen on hard times. His father was a uh, real estate operator. Woody once said that he lost, a, in the uh, post-World War I crash, his father lost a farm every day for 50 days. Uh, so that from prosperity, they sank into real uh, desperation or poverty. But his middle-class background wasn't the only contradiction he embodied. He sings in a variety of songs about how important it is to uh, have a job if you're a family man. And he was a terrible family man. Ed Shannon is a professor of literature who's written about Guthrie. In his autobiography, in fact, he completely ignores the fact that he's married. <laughs> um, he's got a, a wife and three kids at the time he writes the book, and they never even get a mention. Shannon even argues that Guthrie played a character. This working-class kid who... Uh, doesn't have any book learning and uh, is sort of uh, thinking off the cuff and saying whatever pops into his mind and fighting the power and standing up for the little guy. That's a really appealing character. And I think if it's not uniquely American, it's certainly something that Americans admire, uh, that urge to say, I did this all by myself. Uh, and look, you could do that too. In 1941, leaving his family behind in Texas... Guthrie came to New York City. 
the late Pete Seeger remembered what Guthrie was like back then. Okay, and go to the right. Okay. Where our fireplace is. All righty. Back in 2010, I went to visit him in his old wooden cabin on a hill overlooking the Hudson River, a house that he built himself. At the time, he was 91 years old. You know what I need to do is put on my hearing aid. Okay. Pete Seeger met Guthrie in New York at a midnight benefit concert for the California farm workers. Woody was the hit of the evening. With his cowboy hat shoved in the back of his head, he would tell stories and then sing a song. You know, it's a very dry state in Oklahoma. I once saw three telephone poles chasing one little dog. (laughs) Then he'd sing, if you ain't got the do-re-me, boys. If you ain't got the do-re-me, better go back to beautiful Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. He was always cracking jokes, and yet he was basically very serious. 22-year-old Pete and 29-year-old Woody became close friends. He once said, though, that man Seeger's the youngest man I ever knew. He don't drink, don't smoke, don't chase girls. <laughs> He's weird. <laughs> well, and here you are 70 years later. Uh, but he was, he was a young man then as well. He, he, was, not, tw- he not- was seven years older than I was. Yeah. Guthrie had just written This Land is Your Land on his way to New York. Hitchhiking, hobo style. And with his thumb stuck out into the February wind, he was going across Pennsylvania. And when he went in to get a cup of coffee, he heard Kate Smith singing God Bless America on the jukebox. Which had just come out in 38. That's right, it was a hit song. And he made up some verses. As I was walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. God blessed America for me. God blessed America for me? Nora Guthrie keeps the original draft of the song in the Guthrie archives. With, with the chorus here that he's also crossed out again and again, Instead of this land is made for you and me, it was God blessed America for me. Uh, at first, he wrote it almost as a parody of the Irving right. Berlin song. That was kind of country humor at the time, right. too. It's like, you know, like tongue in cheek, well, God blessed America for me, right. ha, ha, right. ha, you know. And then later on, he said, no, it's kind of more serious than that. And this is my own take on the right. country. You know, it's basically, you can look at this land as your land in a lot of different layers. In one simple way, it's really like a biography. Like, when he writes, I roamed and rambled, and I followed my footsteps, he had just been roaming and rambling and following his footsteps. Well, where was he rambling? Through the diamond deserts and across the wheat fields waving. So, if strictly as an autobiography, it's really, really interesting to just pause uh-huh. and say, oh, this isn't poetry. This is journalism. It's, 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 yes, it's stylized journalism, yeah. At the bottom, he wrote... Uh, with an asterisk, he'd write, all you can write is what you see. And that becomes kind of the mission statement for him, you know, and for all the people that kind of followed in his footsteps. That's what he would tell all the young songwriters. All you can write is what you see. So He has, uh, in this more or less original copy, he has the line about the relief office and, and the line about, pri- the sign says private property. Those didn't end up really making the, the song. Uh, why, why do you think that they got edited out? 
I don't think they intentionally got edited out for any overt reason. I think that they published a kind of a half of a version with the three verses in a children's uh, songbook, a music teacher's songbook. And the publisher was the one that really liked this song. His name was Howie Richman. And he was the one that took on Woody's work when other publishers wouldn't in the 1950s because the blacklist was already on. We were in the McCarthy beginning of the McCarthy period. But I think at the time, the thing that, that the publisher did kind of smartly is, you know, sometimes it's really important to move into the center of culture. We can't always isolate ourselves in the outskirts. And so this was an, an example of that. I think it was kind of done innocently. And the song never would have been sung by kids if it had all six verses. I mean, who the hell sings all six verses anywhere of any song in any school? And that is how the song became so immensely popular. It never had a commercial success, never really played on the radio, but kids were singing it all over the country. I remember singing it in grade school in the early 1960s. And Pete Seeger, who'd been blacklisted as a member of the left-wing Weavers, went on the road with his banjo singing Guthrie's songs. Ed Cray. When Pete Seeger had to make a living after being blacklisted, he began... Uh, concertizing wherever he could find an audience, daycare centers, uh, sympathetic churches, whatever. Pete, at every concert on the road like that, Pete would always sing a couple of Woody's songs, sometimes the children's songs, sometimes this land. And uh, if it's a good song, other people will pick it up and sing it. I don't know where I got that idea. I guess I got it from Woody. One of the other people who got the idea was Bob Dylan, who, just like Guthrie, had put on an accent and come to New York City from the middle of the country to make himself new. Nora Guthrie says that Dylan was the one who made her father famous. He got famous one day. And the day was when Bob Dylan's record came out and it had song to Woody on it. Hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song. Bada beam, bada boom. Had a funny old world that's coming along. You know, he had been at the house, he had visited us, he had spent time with my dad at the hospitals, etc. Now, people knew the song This Land is Your Land because they had grown up singing it, but they didn't know anything about the writer of the song. So that's when it all started coming together, was after Dylan sang that song. Hey, Woody Guthrie, but I know that you know All the things that I'm a-saying and a many times more I'm a-singing you the song, but I can't sing enough Cause it's not many the things that you've done. How do you say his name? Gumtree? Gum? I, I can never say his name. Woody Gumtree. Mr. Gumtree. <laughs> I should have said Woody. <laughs> One of my favorite versions of this land was recorded by Sharon Jones in 2005 and used in the movie Up in the Air. You know, I have to be truthful to you. When I first heard I never paid attention to the song because uh, it was like a folk song. You know, this land is your only... I may as well say, well, that's a white people's song, you know. 
Jones was born in Augusta, Georgia, when Jim Crow segregation still ruled. And then, as you get older, you know, long, you look at the lyrics and, and the true meaning of what he wrote the song. You know, he's writing about he's a poor person. He was like, everybody don't have land. And I look at myself. I'm 54 years old. I don't have no land. You know, and I'm like, that's what he was, you know, talking about, talking to the poor people. The main thing is he may have been white and I'm black, but... um. You know, he felt the same thing that I'm feeling, you know. Like, when I'm on stage, I don't—I I can't concentrate on it. I just feel it, you know. And so as soon as that, da 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 sometimes I, I do the thing, like, putting my hand over my heart, you know, like, you know, I'm like the flag, you know, and then I'll come back out, you know. This land is your land. Mm-hmm. This land is my land. This land is your land. This land is my land. And then I'm from there, I'm just feeling the music and I'm just feeling the people. I'm looking at their faces. And I'm on a feel thing then. Then that's that's that feel, that's that soul, that's that I don't even think of the lyrics. They just flow out. From the red forest. To me this song is like I'm not African. But my ancestors are African, and I am American, and then you can come back and say, we didn't walk over here. We didn't get on ships and bring our family. We was brought over here in chains, you know. And half of us didn't make it, you know, and those that did was the strong ones. And those ones that made it are the ones that, where we are from, our ancestors, you know, the generation after generation. We helped build this land, so this is our land. You know, I am American. You can call me Afro-American, black Afro-American. Yeah, we've been called some kind of everything. Negro, colored, um, black. Huh? Then people don't call me black. Yes, just call me. As long as you you know who I am. And I said, this land was made for you and me. Not just Bob Dylan and Sharon Jones, but so many musicians have carried the Woody Guthrie torch, even outside the United States. All told, we came up with about 15 different versions. That's Jorge Arevalo, a former curator of the Woody Guthrie archives. He says the song has been used for all kinds of purposes all around the world, but that they share one idea. There's so many interpretations, but they all really come down to reverence for not property, but the idea of shared ownership. Except for maybe one. The one by the Jerusalem Taverners. The group's singer, Shai Tochner, grew up listening to Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and then formed a band which became very popular in Israel. At a certain point, we tried to get to more Israelis that do not understand English that well. So one of the songs we thought about was This Land is Your Land. This Hebrew version is about different stereotypes within the Israeli population. The first character is the kibbutznik, you know, the, the guy who lives in a kibbutz. The second one represents the religious sector. And the th- third verse was like um, the American immigrant who comes to Israel just to enjoy the life of Tel Aviv. And um, one of the verses is like of the uh, settlers which go to the um, West Bank. 
And then the chorus of the song. This is our land. It is meant for us, from our ancestors, directly to us. This is the land for us. But nowhere in the song does it mention all the Arabs who live in Israel. Um, no, there were no Arabs mentioned in the song. It was an Israeli show. It was for the his Israeli, uh, for the Hebrew-speaking audience. There was not the intention when the song was written or performed. There was no political issue into it. Jorge Arevalo. You can understand why this idea of land, if you are the, you know, the Jewish nation, you know, a, a race that was denied community never having their own state. So you can understand why definitely an Israeli version, a Hebrew version, you know, um, but by the same token, a Palestinian version makes perfect sense. And the song has also been used by people in one country who are political enemies. Mikhail Villa is sort of like the Swedish Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen. He wrote a Swedish version of the song in reaction to right-wing anti-immigrant extremism in the 1990s. I got some Nazi threats, and uh, this culminated in some right-wing guys trying to kill me. They came at night, and they placed a bomb outside the the house I was living in uh, and tried to blow me up. So Mikhail V thought, aside from trying to stay safe, what can I do about this? I'm a singer. So I, I called up uh, some of my friends and we made a big concert in the capital of Sweden, in Stockholm. And then I translated this song, This Land is Your Land, into Swedish. What Woody Guthrie does is to take some important landmarks in the United States, and I do the same when I translate his song into Swedish. I take some important landmarks from the west part of Sweden to, to the east part of Sweden, from the south part of Sweden to the north part of Sweden. This land was made for you and me. Funny thing is, the people who had tried to kill Mikhail Via were impressed. My brother warned me when I had made this translation and said, be careful so the song doesn't end up in the hands of the wrong people. And it has happened that um, some of these neo-Nazi parties published the lyrics of the song on their homepage. Jorge Arevalo again. America ha has always been multicultural in essence, but only now is Europe really facing much more external forces And even though it's not presented to be nationalism, songs can be used for so many different purposes. Because the original lyrics of this land never do say who you are or who I am, or for that matter, who made this land for you and me. Woody Guthrie left those open for all of us to imagine. And that's why the song can so easily take on new lyrics and new meanings like Minnesotan Keith Sokola's version sung in the Native American language Ojibwa. 
And that openness to interpretation, the universality, is why Guthrie's song isn't some dated relic. It's why it still feels meaningful, alive to us now. So what does This Land is Your Land mean to you today, this week? Send us a voice memo to studio360 at wnyc.org. Again, that email address is studio360 at wnyc.org, and we may play your message on the air. At the website, we've got Woody Guthrie's original draft of the song and some video of my visit to Pete Seeger's house. That's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes Jenny Lawton, Andrew Adam Newman, Louie Mitchell, Krista Ripple, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders, Gabriella Cortez, Judy Gu, Jackie Harris. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360... I think often we think about racism as just a feeling people have in their hearts, and racists are just bad people. A novelist rethinks discrimination. But my thing, my question was sort of like, okay, but what about good people who are racist? I talk with the author Britt Bennett next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.